Chapter 26. Chapter 26 is entitled "The Hellish Planet." Today we are on text 24. Um, it's a prose verse, so we will just say the word-to-word translation. Ye, those who, tu, but, iha, in this life, vai, or, shwa, of dogs, gardabha. And asses, and asses. Patayah, maintainers. Brahmana Adayah, Brahmana Shatriyas and Vaishyas. Brahmana Shatriyas and Vaishyas. Mrigaya Viharah, Mrigaya Viharah. Taking pleasure, taking pleasure in hunting animals in the forest. Taking pleasure in hunting animals in the forest. Atirthi. Atirte. Other than prescribed. Other than prescribed. Church. Also. Also. Brigan. Brigan. Animals. Animals. Nignanti. Nignanti. Kill. Kill. Tan. Tan. Them. Them. Api. Api. Indeed. Indeed. Sampretan. Sampretan. Having died. Having died. Lakshya Bhutan. Lakshya Bhutan. Becoming the targets. Becoming the targets. Yama Purusha. Yama Purusha. The assess assistance of Yama Raj. Assistance of Yama Raj. Issue Bhi. Issue Bhi. By arrows. Arrows. Vidyanti. Vidyanti. Pierce. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace, Sri Bhakti Vedanta Swami Shri Prabhupada. Shri Prabhupada Ki. In this life, a man of the higher classes, Brahmana, Shatri, and Vaishya. is very fond of taking his pet dogs mules or asses into the forest to hunt and kill animals unnecessarily he is placed after death into the hell known as um, pranarodha there the assistance of yamaraj make him their targets and pierce him with arrows purport in the western countries especially aristocrats keep dogs and horses to hunt animals in the forests whether in the west or in the east Aristocratic men in the Kali Yuga adopt the fashion of going to the forest and unnecessarily killing animals. Men of the higher classes, the Brahmana, Kshatriyas, and Vaishyas, should cultivate knowledge of Brahman, and they should also give the Shudras a chance to come to that platform. If instead they indulge in hunting, they are punished as described in this verse. Not only are they pierced with arrows by the agents of Yamaraj, but they are also put into the ocean of pus, urine, and stool. described in the previous verse om agyanatmirandhasya gyananjana shalakaya chakshurun militam yena tasmay shri gurave namaha shri chaitanya manobhishtam sthapitam yena bhutale svayam rupa kadamahiyam dadati svapadantikam मुखम करोति वाचालम पंगुम लंगयते गिरिम यत्कृपातमहं वन्दे श्री गुरु दीनतारिनम वांचाकल्पतरुभ्यश्च 
कृपा सिंधु पावनेभ्यो वैष्णवेभ्यो नमो नमः जय श्री कृष्ण चैतन्य प्रभु निनंद श्रीअद्वैत गदाधरा श्रीवासादी गौरभक्तवृंद हरे कृष्णा हरे कृष्णा 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 हरे 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 राम हरे राम 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 हरे 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 कृष्णा um so canto 5 uh, we are on the chapter um, 26 this is actually the final chapter of this canto um it is about to end with this chapter there are a few more verses i think on text 40 the chapter ends so canto 5 the whole canto 5 is about to come to an end and in this final chapter we see the description of the hellish planets so it's So it's a very beautiful canto. I was just reflecting on this whole journey that we had with the fifth canto. So it started with uh, Rishabdev's teaching. In the first initial chapters, we see Rishabdev's appearance. Then we see his teachings to his sons, um, his glorious sons, hundred sons headed by Bharat Maharaj. And then we see Bharat Maharaj's three lives. As Bharat Maharaj then becomes a deer, then he becomes Jhar Bharat. And as Jhar Bharat, we see his teachings to uh, Maharaj Jhumbuna. and after that the canto proceeds to describe maharaj priyavrata's activities and then we see uh, the whole description of the structure of the universe so that for this canto is also called as a creative impetus because we see the secondary creation being described we see how this was universe is structured we saw different aspects we saw the islands of jambudweepa we saw the different varshas in these islands how people in these varshas different different uh, worship different Deities, predominating deities of those varshas. We also saw the descent of Mother Ganga, like from where Mother Ganga originates, how she appears in this material. We saw this whole uh, past time. We also then saw the movements of the sun planet. So how the sun rotates on this chariot, how the days, nights, you know, all the samvatsaras, all these things are formed. And after that, we saw the description of the Shishumara planetary system. Which is shaped like a dolphin, and you know from whom everything is hanging, and how Bhuloka is the central pivot around which every other planet is rotating. So we saw that whole description, and then Sukhdeva Swami proceeded to describe the Vedas Sarga, the lower planetary systems he was describing, uh, which are also called as um, heavenly kingdoms, the lower heavenly kingdoms or subterranean heavenly planets they are called. And after that, we saw the glories of Ananta Dev being described. So it was a beautiful chapter where Anantadev's uh, beauty was being described. How there are so many siddhas and everyone who are worshiping Anantadev. And now we are seeing the description of these hellish planets that has started in this chapter. So the canto is ending with this particular climax. You know how movies have a climax and like there's a suspense and it ends in the climax with a bang. They want to end movies or some shows or dramas. So in the same way we are seeing this canto has. A very climatic ending. There is horrific descriptions of the hellish planets described over there of Narakaloka. They are called as in Sanskrit, which is also called as the realm of Yamaraj um, or Yamaloka. Now these descriptions we also see very similar descriptions we saw in Lord Kapila's teachings in the third canto. Especially we saw towards the. There was a problem. I was trying to listen, but I couldn't. Okay. 
Um, So we see this description even in Kap uh, Lord Kapila's teachings in the third and thirtieth chapter. We see these teachings when Kapila Dev is uh, giving his teachings to his mother Devamuti. There also he describes about what is the journey of a sinful man who has engaged always in illicit sex or in uh, making money illegally, just looking after his family, but you know not doing anything for higher spiritual realization or self realization. Or who has killed animals and all that. So we see those that whole description which Kapila Dev gives to his mother, and there he describes that these people, you know, this type of entities who haven't spent their life in self-realization or God-realization, but they have spent their life in sinful activities or gross self-gratification, they are actually taken away by Yamadutas at the time of death. And it is mentioned in the thirtieth verse of that chapter. It's a beautiful description where it says, uh, Kapila Dev says that as a criminal is arrested for his crime by constables of the state, a person engaged in criminal sense gratification is similarly arrested by the Yamadutas, who bind him by the neck with strong ropes and cover his subtle body so that he may undergo severe punishment. So actually, a person has already died. The gross body has come to an end. Then where is that rope being put by the Yamadutas? So it is said that they are actually taking the subtle body of that person away. Now we know from the Bhagavad Gita and even from Bhagavatam that the subtle body is actually the mind, intelligence, false ego and the consciousness. The soul which is covered by the mind, intelligence and false ego. And whatever impressions, whatever um, good activities or bad activities, those impressions are actually there in the subtle body. And the subtle body then has to undergo the reactions of his good or his bad karmas in his lifetime when he had the gross body. So they take him, they take the subtle body to the abode of Yamaraj to be punished in a way that he is able to tolerate. So we've been seeing descriptions of different different Hanish lands in this particular chapter. Like if somebody doesn't uh, uh, serve guests properly, what hell they go to? If somebody has illicit sex, with somebody else's wife, what hell they go to? If somebody burns someone's house, if somebody kills a Brahman, what hell he goes to? So we see these different descriptions, and each of these 28 Naraka Lokas, which are described, have different types of punishments being meted out by the Yamadutas under the order of jurisdiction of Yamaraj. So Yamaraj sits in the court of law or the court of judgment, and he has his assistant, is Chitragut, it is described. And Chitragut actually keeps a record of all our activities. And then he gives that record to Yamaraj, who then announces what should be done with this particular soul. Whether he should be sent upwards or he should be sent down to the Narakaloka to uh, suffer in hell. So there is so much punishment. We've been reading the descriptions, and that is why they are quite horrific. So in some uh, hellish planets, they are actually put in an ocean of blood, possibly. It's in some hellish planet, uh, a man who was very lusty has, has to embrace the iron hot body of a woman. So like that, I and mean, if somebody was doing some animal killing, vultures come and uh, pluck out his uh, body and continuously he is getting killed. So there is so much punishment which he undergoes, but it is not that that person dies, because if we see sometimes when too much torture is given to a person, then that person leaves the body, he dies. But this is the subtle body which is actually suffering all the reaction. So he feels like he wants to die, but he is not even able to die. He just has tolerating all this punishment which is meted out. So there are long years of suffering in these hellish planets. 
Now, what the seek of after going to the hellish planets, what the suffering is given to these um, uh, impious jivas, even the pathway to hell is extremely distressing for that jiva. So, after again, Kapila Dev continues describing in the third canto. So, after the Yamajita sire moves around his neck and they drag that jiva, the satin body of that jiva, to the hellish planets, on the way also it's described that. It is very distressing for the jiva to travel on that way because there are dogs who are continuously biting them. It is extremely hot. There are desert-like conditions with forest fires going on both sides of that road. The road is scorching. The sun is scorching, and the road is very hot. It's burning the jiva on on his feet, and he wants water. He wants some food, but there is nothing over there. No water is available, and because of fatigue, that satin body, that jiva keeps falling down. And then the jiva is continuously whipped by the Yamadutas to get up and to keep walking. So this is the condition the jiva goes through. And he is wanting water, somebody give me water, somebody give me water, but he doesn't get all that. He has to just, even that road to hell is quite long. It's, I think, described in that it's 86,000 yojanas that the jiva has to travel. So therefore we see, in fact, when some last rites are done, after a relative passes away for the departed person, the son or you know other relatives they do the last rites. So there is, we also did that when my mother-in-law passed away, for example. So when you know the Brahmin tells the priest who is doing all these last rites for you, they tell to prepare some, you know, give some things in donation in Dan for the journey of the Jiva. And there actually they ask us to donate an umbrella, shoes. Um, a water pot and many other things, a walking stick, like that many things are donated, are asked to be donated because they say that these things actually help the jiva on his journey to death. First on his journey to obviously Kithruloka, where Yamaraj sits and does the judgment and then he sent, sent to his uh, destination. So these things, you know, like a water pot will help that jiva get some water properly, the umbrella might protect him from the sun, scorching sun. Um, the walking stick might help him when he's almost dying of fatigue and the Yamadutas are whipping him. So everything, you know, that priest was explaining very nicely that everything has a significance of why these things are given as donation during those 13 days' rites that are done for a departed soul. And it is also described in the Garuda Purana and many other Puranas where all these descriptions are there about the journey of a jiva after he dies. So it is said that you know the pindadan which is done, the rice balls which are prepared as pindadan by the sun, uh, they actually, the journey is so long and during the journey to Pitruloka, the jiva goes to different different places. He is taken to different places by the Yamadutas and the monthly, you know every monthly they do pinda. So every month, whichever place he has reached, he actually partakes of that food. Because that is the only thing which that jiva gets. Obviously, this is all coming in the Karma Panda, the same like the rituals which are done by uh, people who believe in these things. So, if somebody doesn't do that and the family is also very impious, then that Jiva has to suffer. He has to go without any of this food or water or anything directly to Pitruloka. Uh, but for pious people who, uh, you know, who believe in all these ritualistic ceremonies, if they do these activities for their departed souls, it is described in the Puranas that the soul actually accepts that. That Jiva who is suffering on his way, he actually accepts all these offerings which are given to him, especially those Pindalam, the rice balls which are given to him. So this is the path of sin, it is described. So there are two paths are described in the scriptures. One is the path of sin and one is the path of piety. 
So what we are hearing over here in the descriptions of Kapila Dev is actually the path of sin. And what we are also seeing in the, uh, this chapter of the final, fifth canto. So the path of sin, like we said, has scorching sun, desert-like conditions, forest fires, dogs fighting, no water, Yamadutas whipping them. And it is said that the Yamadutas look very scary. They are extremely ghastly looking. People get scared. The jiva gets scared when he looks at these Yamadutas who are then, you know, giving atrocities and cruelties on this jiva. And the, even Yamaraj is very frightening for such a jiva when he is taken to Pitruloka. Yamaraj is sitting on this chair of judgment. It is described as a huge body and like big, big fangs which are coming out of his mouth. His hair is made up of scorpions and snakes and he wears a huge helmet of judgment. So Yamaduta, Yamaraj is also very scary to look at and Yamadutas are also very scary to look at in this path of sin. But in the scriptures, there is also this description of the path of piety. So, when there are, you know, a jiva has done good activities and he is taken first to the court of judgment, to listen to the judgment by Yamadutas, he is taken to the path of piety. And there it is described that there are very pleasant lakes on that path, just opposite of whatever is there on the path of sin. There are pleasant lakes, there are uh, beautiful breezes, fragrant breezes that are flowing or who are coming from the flowers, many flowers which are there on the uh, gardens, heavenly gardens are surrounding these parts. Um, there is nectarine food which is given. So over there no water also and dripping continuously. But here the pious Shiva is given nectarine foods and drinks and he is also given comfortable vimanas to travel on the path of piety. So people who are taken on this path will actually meet a different looking Yamaraj. That Yamaraj is the Vaishnava Yamaraj. The Vaishnava, you know, we know Yamaraj is one of the Mahajans. So these pious people actually meet that form of Yamaraj, where he is dressed as a beautiful pious Vaishnava king. And even the Yamadutas are looking very pious, they are looking very pleasant. And they deal with the Jiva also in a very pleasant way. And then once he goes to Pitruloka and Yamaraj announces, Chitraput gives him the record and the pious jiva has done lots of good activities, then Yamaraj actually gives the announcement that take this jiva to heavenly planets. So that is how the jiva's journey is on the path of piety. But what we are seeing here is a description of um, the journey of an impious jiva on the path of sin and then ultimately to his destination in one of the hellish planets depending on what particular um, uh, activity he has done. So, this the whole purpose of these descriptions, whether in the third canto in Kapila Dev's teachings or now in the fifth canto where it is culminating with these descriptions, obviously is to awaken the sleeping souls. You know, Jeev Jago, it awakens the sleeping souls to the realities awaiting them after death. Now many people don't believe in, uh, in life after death. Many, many people say there is no reincarnation. Everything gets finished with this particular world or with this body and whatever you have to do, just do it in this body. That's it. So many people don't believe in that. And Prabhupada says also, they feel that all oh, this, you know, uh, the god of death is a mythological figure who doesn't exist. It's just to show people that, oh, there is somebody scary who's waiting for you. But Prabhupada says it's not true. These things are given in the Bhagavad and they are given in the different Puranas, so they definitely exist. These uh, personalities exist and these regions, the Narakaloka regions also exist and these punishments also exist. They are all a reality. So if these, these descriptions wake up the jivas to the realities that are awaiting them if they are not leading a pious life. If they are not leading, if they are doing illicit activities, 
just uh, sense gratification for the, their body through uh, illegal means. So if they are not engaged in any pious activities at all, this is the reality which is awaiting, awaiting them. So um, awaiting them, and so the whole purpose of these descriptions, because we might think sometimes Parikshit Maharaj was a pious person who is leaving his body. Why is Sukadeva Goswami giving such descriptions? But obviously the Bhagavatam is meant for all of us, to reform all of us. So it is mainly to caution, scare, warn the jivas from trying to, and to you know, make them really do not try to enjoy this material world, which is full of suffering, misery and pain anyway. And like the first level of intelligence, you know, people who are in that first level of intelligence, who might just by hearing understand and do not repeat that whole thing again, if people hear these descriptions and develop the desired virakti. That is the whole purpose of these descriptions. That we develop the desired virakti from this material world because this is actually what is awaiting people who do not follow any scriptural injunctions which are given over here. So, um, having gone through all the miserable, again Kapila Dev describes this in the third canto. Once he describes the path to hell, then he describes what all punishments does a jiva undergo based on his activities. And then he says, what is the destination? In the final verse of the 30th chapter, he says that having gone through all the miserable hellish conditions and having passed in a regular order through the lowest form of animal life prior to human birth and having thus been purged of his sins, one is reborn again as a human being on this earth. So after he gets hellish punishment, he then gets the lowest form of human, human uh, animal life or amoeba or insects or whatever, then he gradually evolves and then he gets a human form of life. Prabhupada is also here writing one of his purports. Prabhupada says that for people who have done these sinful activities, who are then made to go into an ocean of pus, uh, stool, urine, blood and they are forced to eat all that, they are then given the body of a hog. Because a hog likes to eat, you know, blood and pus and stool and all these things. He likes to eat these abominable things. So the suffering continues then in the body of a hog and then slowly the jiva evolves. So after millions and millions of lifetimes, the jiva gets the opportunity to get his human birth back. And therefore, you know, the jivas who are currently in their human form of life do not realize this uh, opportunity, this rare opportunity they have got. They waste their time, their life away in all these activities, ultimately to land up in hell. So right now they are thinking so-called enjoyment. But ultimately there is hellish conditions awaiting them and after that they lost the whole opportunity. They will go into the cycle of evolution for millions and millions of lifetimes before they again get a human birth. So in today's verse we see that the description is there of people who are who like to hunt animals for recreation. Like Prabhupada says over here in the translation that a man who is very fond of taking his pet dogs, mules or asses into the forest to hunt and kill animals unnecessary. So this is called as recreational killing. So it is said these people who are uh, fond of recreational hunting or it is also called as sport hunting, they are actually taken to a hell known as Pranaruta. And in this hell, he is pierced by the Yamadutas by arrows continuously, he is pierced. Just as he pierced animals during his sport hunting, he is pierced continuously by Yamadutas. And Shriya Prabhupada adds that the punishment doesn't just end there by, you know, did for that. You uh, pierce animals by arrows, so you are getting pierced by the Dutas. He also has to undergo the punishment which is there in the previous verses, in the previous hells, which is described, where he will be put in an ocean of pus, urine, blood, stool, and all that. 
So this type of, I was doing some research on this particular topic of recreation, hunting or sport hunting and there are so many websites and so many articles written about this, especially by organizations like PETA and all. So they say that this type of recreation hunting is also known as trophy hunting and uh, where people hunt animals and then they, you know, most of these things happen in Africa. So they go and hunt these animals and they are these trophies, they are calling it as trophy. These trophies are imported back to their home country and usually US, UK, you know, these people are very fond of doing this. They are imported back to just display on their walls. So that is called as trophy hunting. And the details are quite eye-opening. It is said that more than 125,000 animals are killed every year in trophy hunting. So this is a huge figure. Obviously, there is so much meat eating going on. So animals are being slaughtered for consumption of meat. But this is just for trophy hunting. To put the ball, stuffing the animal and put the ball, uh, head of the animal on their balls or to you know, displace, skin the animal and then put that in their, as a drug in their homes and all that. The whole industry kills almost 125,000 animals every year. So many, like we said, in Africa this happens a lot because we have a lot of forests and natural wildlife in Africa. But in many states in US, UK, Europe, there also this thing is still prevalent. Now when I was reading the, these verses, I was thinking, oh, this used to happen in the olden days. Nowadays, you know, we, I don't think it happens. But by doing research in India, I said this is still a very, very prevalent activity even today. Like many years ago, we all saw there was a big news in, you know, Bollywood media. Like one of the actors, they went and hunted some black deer or something like that. And there was, that was actually a protected species in India. And a very famous Bollywood star did that and there was a whole court case that happened. And obviously, that Bollywood star had a lot of money. He just got the necessary nice publicity that he wanted to promote his movies. Nothing happened about the court case and now that Bollywood star has promoted a brand called as being human. So you see the irony, they go and hunt these black bears or these endangered species and then they promote being human and he groans around you know, with a being human t-shirt on, you know, wearing that t-shirt. Again, all these publicity stunts. So we feel these things might not be happening but they are still very much prevalent. Very prevalent especially in all these countries where white men like to go and hunt these animals of trophy hunting. And most hunters, as I said, covet the big five. Now the big five is a term which hunters have coined, which actually is made up of endangered animals, especially in Africa, like lions, leopards, rhinos, elephants and cave buffaloes. So you see all these huge animals, that's why we call them as big five. And um, because they are some of the largest and most dangerous animals on the earth to hunt. Imagine hunting down an elephant, it's such a huge uh, uh, animal, even hunting down a lion. And the sport doesn't come without its own risks. Because they want the most endangered, the most uh, powerful creatures they want to hunt for their trophies, they also have to sometimes suffer the, the setback of hunting such animals. So it is described that once there was an elephant who was uh, So there was, there was once a hunting party who hunted down an elephant and the, you know, elephants are actually close, they live in close family packs. 
So one of the other elephants in the pack got very like enraged because their uh, family members were hunted by down and killed, and he actually went and attacked this hunting party. And there were two three hunters men who got killed. So the sport has so much risk; they lose their lives sometimes. But still, people want to put their lives at risk, and they do this sport hunting just to get those tro trophies on their wall, or just to show that they are very chivalrous and powerful, and they can hunt down all these animals. So more of your the fiercer the animal, they think that it is more challenging, more display of their power, more chivalrous, and more fun. And therefore, they covet these big fights, the lions, the rhinos, um, elephants, hippopotamus, cave buffaloes, and all that. Now, in the olden days, you know, hunting was traditionally done using bows and arrows. They used to actually have to be a little bit skilled in archery to be able to hunt animals. But now it is done with rifles. With the introduction of guns, it is just done with rifles, with shotguns, and all that. And the sad part is that, it was written in the Feta website, the sad part is that. That while hunting, many of these animals get injured and they are maimed for life or they die because of prolonged starvation and suffering. So when people are hunting deers, now let's say they use a bow and arrow and the uh, uh, arrow pierces the animal in such a place that it's not dead yet and the animal manages to escape because obviously everybody wants to protect their life. So the animal somehow manages to escape. And the hunter is not able to hunt it down, and sometimes they don't even bother. They just move on to the next animal, which is easily available to hunt. So this animal, which has escaped, is still injured, and it is described either it dies a slow, natural, painful death because of that injury, or even if it's able to move around, it loses its ability to hunt and eat, and because of that, it dies of starvation. Same with gunshots, like you know, it is described when deers are killed by these hunters. With one gunshot, usually a deer doesn't get killed. He doesn't die. Usually two or three gunshots are required, as you said. But sometimes with one gunshot, a deer is able to escape. He, he doesn't want to get killed, so he escapes. But after that, will the hunter go behind him and either kill him or will he go and actually give him some treatment so that at least he doesn't die? They just leave him. And then that deer is that dies with slow, painful death. And obviously, he dies of starvation because he cannot go around and eat grass. He cannot run away. He cannot do anything, or he cannot fend for himself. So that is the sad part. Millions of animals are injured during these hunting expeditions, and they die these slow, painful deaths. <clears throat> and it is also said that hunting disrupts migration and hibernation patterns and destroys families. So especially for animals like elephants, fox. They are very family-oriented units. Like we see elephants, you know, again on National Geographic Channel, they always go in herds, and they have a very strong family unit. You say with fox, it is said that the fox or um, even many game birds, we see they all stay together for life with their family. Now, if one member of that family dies, obviously the whole family is destroyed of this particular pack or this particular herd. And it is said also. You know, one more uh, detrimental factor of these uh, sport hunting or recreational hunting is that when a hunter is targeting these animals, they try to target the strongest animal of the pack because again, it's trophy hunting. They want to show they are powerful. They want to show they can. They have the strength and the courage to kill the most powerful animal, or the most dangerous animal. So they do not target the weaker member of that particular pack. 
or that particular species. They are always, if they are targeting a lion, it will be a young male lion that they will target. And because of that, they are targeting these strong animals or the strong species in that particular uh, family. Because these guys are the weaker species are transmitting their genes to the next generations. So therefore, you know, this whole animal, you know, species, the breeding that is happening is happening of the weaker genes and not the strong genes which are there in the animal which was hunted up by these hunters. So on many levels, these recreational sport hunting is actually destroying this natural wildlife. It is uh, obviously migration patterns are going down, migrating patterns are going down, family units are broken down, strong genes are not passed down to the next generations of these animals because of the recreation hunting. Now during the Stone Age, we all studied in history and we see there are many um, artifacts which are recovered. During the Stone Age, this type of hunting was done. Like there were stone uh, tools which were used and there were metal implements they were later on which were used. So this type of um, hunting which was done, it was done for survival. Because people wanted meat to survive so they used to go and hunt. And that was the reason. They wanted food so they used to go and hunt. But now if we see with widespread farming and agriculture, there is no need for anybody to subsist on this meat which they have to go and hunt for themselves in forests. There is widespread, there, there are so many different types of grains available for fruits, veggies, vegetables, everything available for people to eat. So now it is just a hobby for the rich aristocratic family to display their power and chivalry. It is said. It has just become a sport, it has become a hobby. Just as you know, swimming or painting or uh, going for trekking, mountain climbing is a hobby. This is a hobby for the aristocratic, aristocratic and rich families. So I was reading the history of sport hunting. And it was said that in, even in the early, like you know, the uh, raids and Babylon and all that was there. That time was the king's Roman Empire. Kings used to uh, do this sport hunting a lot. In fact, it was described by one of the Roman emperors, Roman kings. He was very fond of killing lions during this sport hunting and he actually got a coin engraved with the lion and uh, with him sitting next to the lion that he has killed and I killed that beast like that he got a coin engraved for circulation so you see it is mainly all for prestige to show others that I have the power over animals even these fierce animals are under my control so this was the whole purpose I gave through and like it is mentioned in the translation by Prabhupada in today's verse even in those days, when I was studying the history, it is said that only the aristocratic people used to go and hunt in terms of the social class. The upper social class people were allowed the privilege of hunting, but the lower social order, like slaves or working people, they were not allowed this um, uh, hunting expedition. They were not allowed to go on these hunting expedition unless they were just going to serve the aristocratic family. So we might think it was a thing of the past, but like I said, and not only is it there currently, it is being supported by governments of various countries. It is a legal, uh, 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 it is a legal recreational sport which is promoted by many governments. So um, they are trying, they are trying, the government is trying to regulate the industry because there are so many illegal poachers also who can hunt down these animals like you know elephants, they are hunted down for their tusks and many animals are hunted down, hunted down for their hides or to make expensive fur coats and all that or they are hunted down for you know some herb medicines some medicinal things which might be there in their bodies so to deter this illegal poachers the government is at the max trying to just regulate this whole industry 
So they have introduced what is called as permit. You need to have a hunting permit. You need to have a license to be able to hunt. Otherwise, you cannot just go and hunt. So they are trying to regulate, but ultimately the government is promoting all these things. And it was written that it is huge revenue actually for the government. Because licenses cost a lot of money. And therefore now this whole has remained like, you know, even in the early days it was for aristocratic people. But now also it is only for the rich people who can afford this type of thing. So the licenses cost a lot of money, the sophisticated equipment that they have to buy when they go on hunting expeditions, the travelling costs to these countries, like you go to Africa, you lodging costs, you have to stay there, food. So it, it's a big industry for the government, where the government is generating a lot of revenue. And then importing of these uh, trophies into the country, that also generates revenue for the government. So in fact, there was a dentist, an, an American dentist who went to Zimbabwe, and it, it, it seems it was a famous news. He hunted down a lion called as Cecil. Cecil the lion he hunted down, which was a huge male lion. And he was successful in hunting it down and very boastful about his uh, feat. And it is said that he had spent a staggering $54,000 just to hunt down that lion. Now imagine $54,000 might be someone's annual salary. You know, someone who's trying to make and speak, it might be his annual salary. And he just spent that much amount of money to hunt down one time. So it is a very expensive sport and obviously it's generating a lot of revenue for the government. So the governments of many countries are still promoting this type of sport. Now this is mainly controlled. You know, this, this sport in developed countries is mainly controlled by private organizations or private firms. People who have huge land. So again, in US alone, I was reading about a person, he has 2 million acres of land which he has converted into this type of trophy hunting or recreational sport hunting for people who can afford it. And the sad part is that the many firms, they offer what is called as when these firms invite these hunters because they want to lure hunters to come and do hunting on their land so that they can make money. And they say they introduce a policy called as no kill, no pay. So if you are not able to place any animal in my land, you don't have to pay. Now obviously then it is in the interest of the owner that they try to ensure that the hunter kills some animal and goes because otherwise they won't get paid. To facilitate that, what do the owners do? They have introduced what is called as canned hunting, which is you know uh, even a sadder climax or a sadder part of this whole recreational sport. So in canned hunting, animals are bred in such a way that they are very used to humans. So like lions, rhinoceros, all these wild animals, they are bred only in such a way that they are okay with human presence. And you know lots of animals are bred, they are imported from uh, Africa and all that into these uh, US or Europe and all these countries where these private firms operate these hunting recreational grounds. So they are imported from there, they are bred like that so that they are used to human presence and they don't attack the human. And after that, they are put in an enclosed space. Now, it could be a small cage or it could be a few acres of land. And usually the hunter hunts down this animal while the animal is eating some food. So, bred in captivity, obviously he doesn't have hunting skills, the animal. So, it's given food to eat and while he's eating that food, the hunter hunts down that animal. So, this is what is offered by these private organizations, these can hunting, to ensure more success for these hunters. So it is a success, it is a sure shot kill that will happen because the animal is in an enclosed space, where is it going to escape? Plus it has not it doesn't have those skills because it has been bred to be 
computed around humans. It has actually been bred to trust human beings. And then the same human beings come and kill them for their own trophy or to take a trophy home. So this is how these private organizations operate. Because no kill, no pay, so they will actually give guided guides who are trained in catching these animals and bringing them, luring them towards the hunter so the hunter can kill them. So this is how the whole industry operates and it's generating millions of dollars of revenue for the government. Now early historical records show now, like here Prabhupada is saying that aristocratic people are used, uh, very uh, fond of taking their uh, dogs and asses and um, horses in, on their recreational hunting expeditions. So in fact early historical records also show that when kings used to go or these aristocratic people used to go for hunting, they would take dogs and horses which have been trained for hunting. And that is the case even now. Now also when people go in the wild for hunting, they take specially trained dogs or hounds who have been, you know, who have the acute sense of smell anyway, but they have been trained to smell, smell out these um, animals where they are hiding and then the hunter follows the trail of that animal to go and capture or hunt down that animal. But the sad part is that, that these dogs who are trained for becoming hunting dogs or hunting hounds, they are chained up till the hunting expedition starts. So they actually spend their life just being chained up. And it is also said that sometimes during these hunting expeditions, the dogs get lost. Because in there in the wilder district, sometimes even on you know, to hunt down polar bears or to hunt down some reindeers and all, they are taken on, you know, on these snow, snow clad mountains. And they get lost sometimes. They lose their sense of direction, they get lost. And the owners don't even bother many times to go and retrieve them. So obviously these dogs are going to die of starvation in that particular uh, case. And it is also said that they, at the end of their hunting life cycle, these dogs and hounds are then left by the owners to fend for themselves and they are just sent away. Again, you know, it is, you know, Peta was writing this, that these dogs then meet with a very painful end. They either die of starvation or because they don't know how to get food themselves, they were always chained up. Or they die by, you know, car accidents and all that. Because these people live in cities, they just feed the dog and they die of car accidents. So this is the sad part when these dogs are taken on recreational sport hunting, but this is the end that they meet. So even though, you know, like people like us, we see all these, you know, descriptions of recreational sport hunting, trophy hunting, can hunting, we see all these descriptions and our heart cries out in pain when we hear about these descriptions. But even people like normal people would be actually contributing to the extinction of species which this recreational sport hunting is contributing to. It is again described in these websites that so many species are slowly endangered and wiped out because of so much recreational hunting. But normal people like us might also be indirectly contributing to that wiping out of these species. Because we see a global warming that you know every all human beings are contributing to industrialization, land acquisition for making big cities or factories or agriculture, it, animals are losing their habitat, they are losing their environment. If we see even in the National Geographic Channel, you know, beautiful documentaries they have, where it is said that because of global warming and early melting of the ice. Because polar bears will survive the ice is there for a long period of time, but most of their habitat is melting and going into the ocean. And you know, one of the documentaries said that the, but for some polar bears in some region where so much global warming is impacting that ice ice cap, 
they have to travel about hundreds of kilometers just to get one meal because they are not able to find anything in, because the ice has already started melting or even migration of birds sometimes they have to migrate early because of global warming they are losing because you know sometimes summer comes early or if heat comes early and they have to migrate and by migrating their young ones are still not strong to migrate and they die yeah, those young ones who are not able to fly those long distances die so in this way we see human beings, normal human beings who might not be engaged in this recreational sport hunting or trophy hunting are still contributing to the extinction of species because of their own activities and therefore Srila Prabhupada always used to promote farm communities, simple living so that we are self-sustained, we are not encroaching on animals uh, land like in Vishwabharimusha they say no? everybody has their own quota and they should live within that quota so animals have their own quota, nature has given them the Lord has provided that particular habitat for them but through our activities we are encroaching on their quota and because of that we are actually contributing to endangering these species for life so Prabhupada always used to say that you know as devotees we must try and you know especially we, we must try and um, uh, give, give the opportunity to outside people to come and live, live these farm communities and our temple is actually doing such a beautiful work of these farm communities we have a beautiful farm community the Hare Krishna Valley that we have Keshav and all the other devotees who are living there they are doing cow protection, farming so many activities are going there which gives people an opportunity for natural living without having to contribute to these things which are actually taking away the animals land and their natural habitat and sometimes you know when we read about this recreational sport hunting the question might be asked that even Kshatriyas in our scripture Kshatriyas are mentioned they also used to hunt then how do you make sense of that particular hunting they used to go to the forest to hunt as well and what do we make of this and we know in the scriptures it is described in the Mahabharata Maharaj Pandu used to go and hunt even uh, Arjuna used to you know the Khandava Kasta forest he also was hunting animals over there many Kshatriyas used to do Dashrath Maharaj we see how he got that curse because he was hunting in the forest and he mistook that boy for a deer and he shot an arrow so like that even the Kshatriyas used to hunt and the question is sometimes asked that you are you know saying no recreational sport hunting or no animal killing but in your own scriptures it is said that your, your own shatriyas used to hunt so the answer is given so answer is given by Maharaj Pandu so when Pandu Maharaj was actually we know the story that Pandu Maharaj was hunting in the forest and he saw a deer and he hunted down that deer but actually that deer was a brahmin who had taken that form to make with his wife so both the Brahmin and Brahmini had taken the form of deer and Maharaj Pandu killed one of the deer and the Brahmin actually goes and uh, goes means and Maharaj Pandu goes there he questions him why did you kill, why did you kill us? and that time Maharaj Pandu explains in the Mahabharata why Kshatriyas have to kill so there are three reasons um, which Maharaj Pandu gives one is that and also the scriptures explain even Prabhupada explains why Kshatriyas used to kill sometimes so the first reason is that reason is that the dangerous animals have to be killed by these Kshatriyas so that the forests remain peaceful for the sages to practice their austerities and meditation. We saw even in Ramayana 
like uh, you know some of the animals are coming in the sages and even the demons Malicha and Kadaka uh, coming in the sages and then Lord Ram and Lakshman go and protect these sages in the forest because they were not able to do peaceful meditation and carry out their yajyas properly. So in the same way, Kshatriyas sometimes hunt these animals in forests because they want to protect the sages from these animals who might then attack the sages. So in, in the older days, in the forest, sages used to sit and do all this worship. But nowadays, we don't have any sages who go and worship in the forest and why do this recreational sport and thing. But Kshatriyas are a valid reason that it was their duty to protect the sages as well as protecting the citizens and therefore sometimes they would kill animals. Secondly, there are animals who uh, sometimes be sacrificed in yajyas. And because of that, through chanting of mantras, they would be given a new life. Some of, some of these animals are sacrificed in yajyas. And because of that also, Kshatriyas would kill animals in the forest. And the third reason is that hunting always allowed for Shatri, was allowed for Kshatriyas because it gave them the opportunity to practice their fighting skills. So Prabhupada says that in the olden days, the Kshatriya kings used to lead from the front. Not like the modern days where the poor soldiers have to go and fight wars and the head of the state or the president or prime minister of the country is sitting in his room and giving commands. No, the Kshatriyas used to lead from the front. They would be there on the battlefield by fighting a war and to hone their fighting skills, they were allowed to hunt these animals down because that way they could practice their uh, skills like archery skills or spear throwing skills and it would make them used to see blood and killing. To make them used to see that, they were trained like that. So they, they would go in the forest and they would hunt animals sometimes for this reason. And the purpose was mainly to protect the citizens in the end when they fight wars. So Kshatriyas by nature, they are very strong, they have a strong physique, they are very chivalrous, very powerful and their duty was to protect citizens. And how did they do that? Was by practicing on animals, by doing this hunting in the forests of animals. So these were valid reasons. But if you see, again, you know, these research papers in PETA and other websites are showing, why do people do nowadays trophy hunting? And the reason actually boils down to what Bhagavatam always says, that these people do trophy hunting and they pose next to an animal, like whom they have killed, they very proudly pose next to an elephant or a rhinoceros or a lion or something, and then upload it on social media for everyone to see how powerful, how valorous I am. So they want to display this, it is said, and you know this research paper was written, that they are doing this mainly to impress the opposite sex. So that the opposite sex sees that, oh, this person is so wealthy, because obviously recreational sport hunting can be afforded only by wealthy people. So oh, this man has a lot of money, and he's also very chivalrous and powerful. So it is said that it is mainly to attract this opposite sex to their hunting expeditions and to these trophies that they put on their walls or these photographs that they upload on social media just so that others will get the message that I am I am a very powerful and chivalrous man. And this is what we see in the Bhagavatam. Continuously Bhagavatam talks about that, that attraction to the opposite sex is a gateway to health. And the whole world is revolving around that particular activity of how I can attract the opposite sex and this recreational sport hunting is one of the ways to attract the opposite sex. So, um, you know, this recreational sport hunting was done by Shatriyas for valid reasons but nowadays there is no valid reason to do these recreational sport hunting and we know from the past that there are stories in the Bhagavatam and in the 
Puranas of famous hunters who used to do this sport hunting and kill animals, but then who were transformed in their lives and their habits by the intervention of a pure soul. Lava Mata Sadhu Sangha Sarva Shastra Pure. So we know the story of Mrigali the hunter. Now Mrigali the hunter was always used. He was trained by his father. He was always used to kill half kill animals. He would not even fully kill animals. And one day Naradhuni happened to pass by from there. And Naradhuni said that why are you half killing animals? At least fully kill them. Because if you half kill animals, you will have to suffer in hell more than if you fully kill an animal. And Vigari Dhanthara never heard of these things. He never knew what is Papa Punya. Nobody had talked to him about piety, sin. So he was very intrigued. And he tells Naradhuni that I am doing this for my subsistence. And Naradhuni then said, Okay, if I give you another form of subsistence where you are able to survive without killing these animals, will you give it up? And regarding because obviously association of a pure devotee, he immediately felt very attracted to Naradhuni's words. And he said, Okay, I am ready to give it up and I am ready to try out if I am able to subsist without killing these animals. So then Naradhuni said, He said, Okay, you come outside this village, he set up a beautiful Tulsi plant. And Rigari and his wife, they donned the robes of the sadhu and they sat down and he told him to chant the names of the Lord. Just sit and chant and everything will fall in place. You won't have to worry. And when this transformation happened in Rigari, he actually sat down with his wife and started chanting. The news spread all over the village and people were coming to see this Rigari hunter who was transformed. And if you know that practice is there even today in India, that whenever we go to a sadhu's place or any guest's place, we take something for that guest. So like that, these people were bringing so many things, rice, grains, dal, fruits, vegetables. And Vidati Dhanda realized that I don't have to kill animals to subsist. By the arrangement of my guru, I am killing everything just because of taking shelter of the Lord. And similar stories there. And you know, when Naradhuni actually goes and calls Parvata Muni, that I have this hunter who was so cruel, he used to take pleasure in seeing half killed animals and suffering of animals, and now he has transformed. And Parvata Muni was so eager to take a darshan and associate with Brigari. So he actually comes over there, and Brigari, when he sees these two sages coming, Parvata Muni and Naradhuni, he becomes so happy and he runs towards them. But Parvatamuni also said he is jumping there and there and running. And then Parvatamuni asked him, why are you walking like this, jumping a little bit here and there? And he said, oh, I could see there are some ant hills on the floor of earth and I wanted to avoid killing the ants. That is why I was jumping here and there and coming to you. So Parvatamuni was so like happy and he said that, look at this hunter, from you know, taking pleasure in looking at half-killed animals, today he is not wanting to even kill an ant. That is the transformation that happened because of Naradhuni's association. Another hunter who Naradhuni uh, transformed his life was Valmiki Muni. So Valmiki Muni just said he was actually the son of a Brahmana. But somehow he was separated from his father and he was you know, in the forest. And over there a hunter took pity on this little boy and he raised him. Now obviously he was raised by a hunter, so he also became a hunter like his father, following the footsteps of his father and he used to hunt and kill so many animals in the forest. And later on he was married and he had children, so to survive hunting was not enough, so then he became a dacoit as well, attacking people, robbing them and hooting them, who would pass through the forest 
pathways. So like this again, Narad Muni was passing by and Valmiki actually attacked Narad Muni. And then Narad Muni questioned him. He said that, uh, will your family partake in the sins that you are committing right now? And that man's eyes opened, Valmiki's eyes opened and he realized. And he went and actually asked his family and they said, no, it's your duty to protect us. We are not, you know, the way you protect us, you are choosing that profession. How can we partake of all the sins that you are doing? And this made Valmiki Muni come to his senses. And he actually came and fell down at the lotus feet of Narad Muni. And he said that my family said they will not partake in the sins that are accruing because of killing these animals or because of polluting people and murdering people. And then Narad Muni tells him to sit down and chant Ram. Chant the holy name Ram. But because he was so sinful, he was not even able to chant that name. So then he said that, okay, you chant Mara. Mara means Mara, you know, in Hindi or Sanskrit, he said to the death of an animal. And that was easy for Valmiki to chant. So he said, Mara, 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 and that way it became Ram, Ram, Ram. And it is said that because he chanted for thousands and thousands of years, he lost, like we heard about Hiranyakashipu's uh, austerities. The, there was an ankle around his body. And then later on he emerged, when he got self-realization, he emerged from that ankle and therefore his name is Valmiki. And you know, he composed beautiful poems. He's also called as Adhikali, the first poet, because he composed beautiful poems and then he sat and wrote down the whole uh, Ramayana. So we see, just by the association of devotees, these two hunters became great devotees. So in the same way, we have these people who are addicted to meat-eating, who are addicted to animal feeling, whether for sport, recreation, trophies, whatever. But devotees, by their efforts, are spreading the word. They are doing harinams, again, you know, speaking highly of art and to engaged in so many of these activities, which wherein we are actually allowing people to have bhakti and mukhi sukhati. By spreading the holy names around every, like different, different suburbs where harinams are organized, doing prashadam distribution. Manmohan Prabhu, he is doing so much prashadam distribution to the councils, to so many people these prashadam is going. So like this, even if they don't become devotees straight away, there is so much sukriti that they are generating by doing this. And slowly, definitely, they will give up these activities in this lifetime or in the other lifetimes. So very important for devotees to continue these efforts so that we reach these people who are unfortunately not aware who are involved in animal killing but are unfortunately not aware of the, uh, uh, of the destination that awaits them in hellish planets. So by creating awareness, by creating Sukriti, Harinam, Prashadam distribution, devotees are engaged in actually reclaiming these fallen souls and preventing them from going to hell. So that is the contribution of devotees in this particular uh, activity of people. I'll stop the class here, it's 9 o'clock. Are there any questions, comments, corrections? Um, so you said, um, I was just wanting to ask, can, after human life, if you commit sins, you have to go to hellish planets, you can't just go to an animal life, an earthly animal life first. You have to go to hellish planets first and then Yes, that's what the scriptures say. Like, depending on the level of uh, sin that you commit, committed, obviously, um, you go to different hellish planets, there you suffer and then you come as an animal body. So, depending, let's say you are very fond of animal killing, then maybe you might come as a tiger or something like that. But first you go to hell, 
suffer and then you come back to as these species continue. So Prabhupada also says that we see sometimes village conditions exist even on this planet. So if you if a self-care soul looks like a pig, obviously the pig is in a hellish condition of life. No? He has no awareness, he doesn't know, he's a eternal jiva and eternal servant of Krishna, he doesn't know that. But he's just happily eating the stool and all the abominable stuff that are given to him. So Prabhupada says hellish conditions even exist here. But first they suffer in hell and then they are given a body which will continue the suffering like that and then only slowly they come back to the human species of life. Long <laughs> it's a long journey. So better not to lose this one opportunity we have right now. Yeah. Also, if a soul is eligible to be liberated after this life, does it still have to go through um, Yamaraj? What's it called? What's it called? Yamaraj? Uh, so in some Puranas it is written that yes, Yamaraj, even the path of five is there, so some of them are sent to heaven by Yamaraj. It's not that everybody goes to hell through Yamaraj. So if they have pious activities, charities, like you know, whatever pious activities they've done, they might be going to hell, sorry, heaven. But it is also written in some Puranas that Yamaraj also tells that you know certain jivas who have done good activities, they should be sent to the spiritual world. So one version of the Purana says that, but we also know from the Bhagavatam, the Surya Bajamil is there. Now unknowingly he chanted the name of Narayan. He was actually calling out to his son, but unknowingly he chanted that name. And even the Vishnu Dutas came to take him. So some, you know, it is also mentioned that then the Yamadutas don't take that soul away, the Vishnu Dutas come and take the soul away straight away to the lotus feet of Vishnu. In fact, while I was you know reading for this class, it was said that one uh, one person was very addicted to killing and all that, he had done lots of impious activities, but somehow at the time of his death, he embraced uh, a murti, a deity of Lord Shiva. And just because of embracing that Murti uh, at the time of his death, the Yamadutas could not take him. Yamaraj said, no, no, don't bring him. Let him get another body. He will suffer for his impious activities on earth in perished conditions itself. But he will also get the Sukriti for embracing Lord Shiva's body. So all these, you know, it's the workings of Yamaraj. It is said also, only Yamaraj and Krishna know what is awaiting for a particular soul, for what particular activity he goes. And sometimes, some, a jiva might sometimes visit hell for a short period of time because they have done some impious or uh, illicit activity. So they go and sit for some time and then they are sent to hell to then get the, uh, uh, enjoy the um, reactions or the good, good deeds that they have done in their life. Right? So all these combinations are it's very intricate to understand the workings of karma. So, but also humans can have another human birth after this after Yes. Birth. Okay, but they just can't go down to the animal species. They they go down into the animal species after going to hell. Yeah. Yeah. But it's possible to get a human birth after a human birth. Yes, but again, you know, depending on what they have done, like some impious activities, again, this is all not talking about devotees, devotional services out of that sphere, they are talking about people who are engaged in, let's say, some karmakanda bias activities or something like that, but they have also done some immoral activities. So, they do go to Yamaraj, maybe suffer for some time, again given a human body to then, you know, it may be a good birth to continue with their good activities or something like that. So, yeah. Thank you. And it is also said that Vaishnavas who are on the path, who are not perfect with their life and are not ready to go back to Godhead, they are, uh, they don't have to go through these journeys of path or fighting. 
They straight away take birth in another womb of a Vaishnava. So Prabhupada says for by practicing devotees, that is the destination. So like you said, yes, it is possible to get a human birth straight away, for, especially for devotees. They don't go in on either of the paths, either five years in. They, they straight away go into a Vaishnava mother's womb to continue practicing their devotional service in their next life. Krishna Prabhupada says that Krishna consciousness will save the world like its darkest star, so that is our only hope. Thank you. Krita Shrimad Bhagavatam ki, Shila Kaupad ki, then...